Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. Last week we had the joy of having Mark Kuyper come and preach from our plant in Grove. And when he got up here to preach, he said that Blake asked him to preach from Ezra, and he said no. I didn't realize that was an option. But we do not skip passages at this church just because they're difficult. This, like all scripture, is God-breathed and useful to us for teaching and for training in righteousness. Some passages, like this one, just require a little extra work. Right, because when we first read through this passage, when I first read it, Blake told me I was going to preach on this, and I was like, I have to preach on what? This one's tough. And if you're like me, your initial reading of this passage might have landed you in the arena of thinking that this is about interracial marriage. But let me encourage you to hold off on that belief because I hope that as you wrestle with this passage and you listen to this sermon, you'll come to find out that this is not about interracial marriage, but it is instead about the faithfulness of God's people to obey the civil law which God gave to them. This passage is all about that law. And I hope to show you this through three points. One, what the law is not. Two, what the law is. And three, what the law teaches us. So that's one, what the law is not. Two, what the law is. And three, what the law teaches us. First, what the law is not. To recap what happens in this passage, Ezra finds out that some of the men of Israel in their exile have married women of other nations who are not Jewish. In this discovery, Ezra laments because this is a clear violation of the law that God gave to his people. And we see this law in Deuteronomy 7. We're going to get to it in a little bit. But Ezra brings the people together and he reminds them of their covenant to God that they will obey his laws and they will be his people. And in a somewhat rare instance of Israel's obedience, the men who took wives from other nations agreed to end their marriages and to repent of their disobedience. And to really understand why Ezra and the Jewish people took this so seriously, we have to step away from the passage for a bit. I promise we'll go back to it, but you cannot understand the context of what's going on in this passage without knowing what the law is and why God gave it. Now, I just mentioned a bit earlier that the law Ezra is reminding the Israelites of is not about interracial marriage. When we use that term, interracial marriage, in our modern age, we think of it as marriage between people who have two different skin colors. And let me be clear from the top of this sermon, using this passage or any passage in Scripture to to claim that saying people with different shades of skin should not marry is an abhorrent misunderstanding of Scripture. It is an unjustifiable viewpoint to have as a Christian. God did not create different races of humans. God created one race of humans, and we all bear his image, regardless of the physical differences that we might see. But how do we know that this passage and the law it centers around is not about interracial marriage? Well, let's look at the law itself. God gives his law to his people in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. When the Israelites conquer another people group, God tells them this. He says, You shall not intermarry with them. 
giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This is what Ezra prays about in this passage. We also get a reaffirmation of this law in 1 Kings 11.2 where it says, The Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. And Ezra himself in today's passage in 9.14 asks, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? In every case of the reminder of this law, the point is not, do not marry people who have different genetics than you. Do not marry people that look different than you. Do not marry people that talk different than you. That's not what's being said. The point is, do not marry people who do not believe in God, because they will turn you from faith. The law is only about race insofar that barely anyone outside of the Jewish race believed in God and obeyed his law. And the reason I say barely anyone is because there are cases where a Jewish person married someone of another nation and it was celebrated. The chief example of this is the story of Ruth. The youth on Sunday mornings are studying this right now, but in the book of Ruth, we're introduced to Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. She's not Jewish, but she, becomes, she comes to believe in God and obey his laws due to her promise to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And the rest of the book is how Ruth and her lover, the Jewish man Boaz, come to be married. And though Ruth is Moabite by ethnicity, she practiced the law, and she obeyed God, and she had faith in him, and their marriage is blessed. How do we know that this marriage is blessed? Well, Ruth was King David's great-grandmother. And through the line of David, we can trace who? Jesus Christ. Not only was Ruth and Boaz's interracial marriage blessed, but all nations were blessed through the offspring of their interracial marriage. The founder and perfecter of your faith and the one who earned your salvation is descended from the marriage of a Moabite woman and a Jewish man. Point one, what the law is not, the law is not about interracial marriage. Which brings us to point two, what the law is. Now you may have heard from the readings of the actual law earlier what the law is, but I want to start with an understanding that this law is a civil law. And to understand what civil law is, we have to go back to the reason for it. In Exodus 19, after God brought the Israelites out of their captivity in Egypt, God on Mount Sinai tells Moses this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God tells Israel that they will be a holy nation of priests, and Israel, they hear this and they might be thinking, well, that's great, but how do we do that? And so God does what? He gives them his law. That's what that's for. He gives them three kinds of law. He gives them moral law, like the Ten Commandments, and that's to guide their ethics. He gives them ceremonial law, and that informs the priest how to handle sacrifices and how to observe the rituals of the tabernacle and eventually of the temple. 
And he gives them civil law to govern the criminal law of Israel through their judicial system and the non-criminal law of institutions like marriage. And when a nation betrays its civil law, a nation cannot function. Roads are unsafe without speed limits. Personal property is in jeopardy when there are no laws against theft. And for Israel, their identity as a holy nation of priests was in jeopardy when their people began to marry those of other nations. Why? Why was the civil law against marrying people of other nations? We read it three times in the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 7, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 1 Kings 11, for surely they would turn away your hearts after other gods. Ezra 9.14, they practice abominations. The law is about interfaith marriage. God knew that by marrying people of other nations, the Jewish people would be led away from their faith and be tempted to worship other gods. Their focus on being a priestly nation devoted to their covenant with him would be distracted by the shadow of sinful idolatry. And so to safeguard their affections and their faith, God gives them a civil law to protect them. Point two, what the law is, the law is a civil law against interfaith marriage. The law is a civil law against interfaith marriage. So to recap, point one, what the law isn't, the law is not about interracial marriage. Point two, the law is a civil law against interfaith marriage. Which leads us to point three, what the law teaches us. How do we apply this? And for this last point, I want to break it up into three subpoints of application for the sake of those of you who take notes. Subpoint one, the law applied in Ezra. Subpoint two, the law applied through the New Testament. And subpoint three, the law applied in our relationships today. And you know, this is a super Presbyterian sermon because my three points have three points. But let's start with subpoint one, the law applied in Ezra. I told you we'd get back to it. Knowing that this law we just talked about was a civil law for Israel to keep in their obedience to God, it helps make some sense of why Ezra has such a strong reaction to finding out that the people have been breaking this law. Ezra, as we read in verse 3 of chapter 9, was so upset that he tore his clothes, and he even tore hair from his head and from his beard. This story in chapters 9 and 10 wasn't even about Ezra's sin. Ezra was not guilty of doing this. He had not broken this law. This was about the sin of the people around him, and Ezra is distraught. Can you imagine if we saw communal sin to the same magnitude as Ezra? Ezra knew that sin does not just affect the one who sins, it affects everyone in a community, and Ezra knew this specifically because of their people's history. God allowed his people to be sent into exile for their disobedience. And just as they are allowed to return home, Ezra sees that Israel is once again disobedient. Can you imagine how he felt? Ezra does not want to lose his home again, and neither do the Israelites. And so in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 9, these highlight Ezra's understanding that their exile was deserved, and their gift of returning from exile is something that he doesn't want to lose, and so something has to be done about it. 
forgiveness and repentance. Ezra mourns, and Ezra pleads to God for mercy. Notice that in his prayer, in the entirety of verses 6 through 15, Ezra speaks in the first person plural, we. Again, Ezra knows that any sin in a community is a sin that affects the whole community. But the Israelites did not just ask for forgiveness as a community, they also repented as a community. We didn't get the chance to read all of Ezra 10, because there's some really difficult names at the end that I didn't want to have to pronounce in front of everybody. Um, but if you read that whole thing, we learn that the, the men of Israel, who had married women of other nations, listened to Ezra, and they agreed that it's for the best that they actually divorce their wives and adhere to God's civil law. Oh, that we might take our sin and our repentance as a church as seriously as Ezra and the Israelites did. Next, subpoint two, the law applied in the New Testament. Now, many of you might know this, but we learn in the New Testament in Matthew 5, 17, that Jesus fulfilled the law. And when it comes to civil law, this means that not only did Jesus perfectly keep the law and apply this righteousness to us as believers in his death on the cross, but he also fulfilled the command that the Jewish people were to be a set-apart nation how do we know this? Because Jesus sent the apostles to make disciples of all nations. But does that mean that this law about interfaith marriage was abolished? No, Jesus did not abolish the law. He was clear on that. In fact, in this passage that the Pops read for us earlier, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 actually expands the law, and he explains how the nature of this law is still applied to us as Christians today. Paul writes that we as believers should not be unequally yoked to unbelievers in marriage. Now, in the culture that we live in today, this analogy might escape some of us because of how separated most of us are from farms, but even on a farm, most people do not use a yoke and a plow anymore. See, a yoke is a cross piece made for two animals to fit over their necks so that they might pull a plow across a field. And for this to work well, the animals need to be as similar as possible. They need to be of the same height and about the same strength. And they need to be of the same experience to be able to, to pull the plow across the field for it to work correctly. Paul's analogy here is to show that when believers and unbelievers are united in the covenant of marriage, it's like two animals who are expected to work together to drive a plow when there's a major inconsistency in their abilities to do so with each other. For the same reasons that we see in the Old Testament, Paul takes that language of Deuteronomy 7 and applies the spirit of the law to Christians. He's saying there's no wisdom in trying to form a union between one who's righteous and one who does not even believe in God. So subpoint two is this. The law applied through the New Testament, it's applied in this way. Though we do not live under the civil law of the Old Testament because of the life of Christ, we still obey the spirit of the law. Again, subpoint three, the law applied in our relationships today. How do we take all of this from Ezra? How do we take the law? How do we take Paul's explanation of it and actually live it out? What does that look like for us? I want to start with something called the floor and the ceiling of the law. And this is not just a Christian thing. This is used to talk about all kinds of laws. But the idea is this. There is a floor to every law. 
That is the minimum standard that is expected under the law. And there is a ceiling to the law, which is the unwritten reason for the law and the aspirations that the law hopes for for those that follow it. For example, if we take the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, what is the floor of that law? Don't murder, right? Don't murder. Do not unjustly take a human life. If you never murder anyone and you get to the end of your life, congratulations, you did the bare minimum that that law expects from you. But what's the ceiling of that law? It's that all human life is worth protecting. Life has value. We keep the floor of the law by not committing murder, but we keep to the ceiling of the law by protecting all human life. That's how the floor and the ceiling of the law works. So how does this apply to the law against interfaith marriage? Well, the floor of the law is this. Do not marry someone that has a different faith than you. That's the bare minimum that that law expects. Do not marry someone that has a different faith than you. And just above that, but maybe not the ceiling, is that if you get married, marry someone who is also a Christian. Right? That's the inverse of what the law says. Marry someone who is a Christian if you are to get married. But I think the actual ceiling of the law is this. When you are married to someone of the same faith, encourage one another in the faith. It's the opposite of what happens in interfaith marriages. Instead of pulling each other away from God, marriage between Christians should point each other more and more toward God. Our relationship with God is our ultimate joy and fulfillment. And being married to someone who shares your faith helps you enjoy God more fully. If you're married to someone that has different goals than you at their core, it makes that task so much more difficult. And so I think the application of the law in this passage as a whole is this. It matters who you surround yourself with. It matters who you surround yourself with. If you're married, do not settle for the floor of the law and just be content that your spouse is a Christian. Like, I did it. I married a Christian. That law's done. That's not how it works. God has called you into a beautiful covenantal union where you both have the chance to encourage one another in your faith. You who know your spouse's deepest sins and deepest weaknesses have the unique opportunity to show Christ to your spouse where they need him most. If you're single, but you want to be married, learn from Paul and the seriousness of Ezra's treatment of this law and know that when you're looking for a partner, you must look for someone who's a Christian. It's one of the most important traits you can look for. All things are about Christ, and that includes marriage. If you're a Christian, it's the biblical call that you should look for a spouse who is one as well. And to the single person who is content in their singleness or has chosen that life for themselves, it's still important who you surround yourselves with. There are friends who you might find that will be closer than family. And I encourage you to make it your goal that those people are Christians so that you might lift one another up in the faith. And finally, to those of you in the room who married someone who practiced a different faith at the time you got married, know this. Ezra and the Israelites resorted to divorce because it was their way to keep the civil law. We are no longer under the civil law. You do not need to and you should not get divorced because of a different belief at the moment in the past. And I think that while Paul's command to us in, this, in 2 Corinthians is wise and good and true to safeguard us from being swayed away from our faith, 
I think it can go the opposite way too. Though we do not marry in the hopes that it will convert our spouse, I do think that through marriage an unbeliever could come to know God. And though I think this might be the difficult path, I think it could be a beautiful one as well. So altogether, these three areas of application in Ezra, the New Testament, and our lives today show us this. We must take God's law seriously. And this means being serious about who we surround ourselves with. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whether in marriage or in friendship, we must encourage one another in the faith. And we must seek to be the holy and righteous people that God calls us to be as a community. Let's pray. Let's pray.